Well, we're going to read the scriptures tonight. We're going to read from uh, from uh, Genesis, all right? Genesis 39. Genesis 39. We're dropping in tonight to uh, the story of Joseph and a particular, uh, particularly important point in in the story of Joseph, uh, entitled in the NIV "Joseph and Potiphar's Wife." So, Genesis 39. If you've got a pew Bible, uh, this is from page 43. You'll find this. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So Genesis 39, reading from verse 1, remembering this is God's Word. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, And he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He he came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought Uh, You brought us, came to me to make sport of of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the palace, uh, the place where the, the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of 
all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn uh, to Genesis 39, uh, that passage that we read earlier. We have over these uh, coming Sunday evenings in August a a couple of different speakers and and not really an easy opportunity to do a little series. So uh, we're having a a number of what we might call uh, one-offs, looking at a few different parts of the Bible with different people doing that. And uh, tonight, we're in Genesis 39. Let me say a little bit about what was informing my thinking as we were doing that. Um, I I was up at Port Stewart earlier in uh, July, and John D. Rhodes was uh, speaking on Genesis and and put some of uh, the the story of Joseph very much into my head very helpfully. If you've got a chance to pick up uh, John D.'s talks, I think they will be online Uh, you should really do that very, very uh, helpful journey through some of these chapters in Genesis. And and then just uh, this week, I was listening to, uh, watching a little presentation about some themes in this passage and ways in which it could be approached if you were going to preach it. And I found it marvelously encouraging. And and I thought, I really must share this on Sunday night. And of course, as I got nearer Sunday night, I thought, oh, I'm not so sure that was a good idea. But uh, there we are. We're we're here anyway. And uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to drop into the life of Joseph uh, this evening. And we're dropping into a particularly critical point in Joseph's life. He's a slave in Potiphar's house. Uh, Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him. And in the previous chapter terrible chapter in the account of the scriptures. Uh, Judah has, uh, his brother Judah has committed a terrible sin against Tamar. And in this chapter, Potiphar's wife attempts to commit a terrible sin against Joseph. And so the, the Bible is just very subtly saying, men and women are capable of terrible things, terrible sins against one another. And uh, putting those side by side just underlines that here. Uh, Potiphar's wife is the one who is attempting to do uh, what is very, very wrong. Now, roughly, uh, just to put this in context, all of this takes place uh, around 1,900 years before Jesus. Uh, Joseph, you may know, is the favored son of Jacob uh, and uh, one of the sons of his favored wife, Rachel. And, and, and if you know the story, you remember that his other brothers hate him, his half-brothers hate him. And when they are far from home, Looking after the sheep, Joseph is sent out to them, and, and they, they plot, first of all, amazingly, to kill him. But then they end up selling him to a caravan of Ishmaelite traders and telling a, his father that he was killed by wide, wild animals. And the traders take him to Egypt, and he is sold as a slave, and he ends up in the household of Potiphar who's the captain of Pharaoh's garden. So really one of the very, very key individuals, powerful individuals in, in the superpower of the time of Egypt. Now, whenever you, we often turn to this passage, you'll often hear this passage uh, uh, preached, as it were, with, with uh, lots of emphasis on how Joseph resists temptation. 
Uh, we'll hear about the, the nature of the temptation that Joseph undergoes and the very good and clear choices that he makes, which, which of course are very good and very clear. And, and, and that's good as far as it goes. But actually, the, the main emphasis of this passage is perhaps somewhere else. Not that that's not valuable. We will indeed look at it a little bit. But if, if you want to summarize it like this, it's, the, the chapter is really not so much about what Joseph is doing for God, but it's what God is doing in and through Joseph. I, I mean, we, we see that actually in the way that the chapter is sort of structured. If you see at the beginning of the chapter, verse two, it says the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. So Joseph prospers in Potiphar's house. We read that Potiphar doesn't concern himself with anything as far as the house is concerned except the food on his table. Some of us uh, have that privilege uh, that, that, that uh, we don't concern ourselves with anything except whatever's put in front of us. Uh, well, maybe not very many of us, but, but Potiphar was able to do that because uh, Joseph was so incredibly able in all that he was doing. And then, of course, he's falsely accused and he ends up in jail. And the same pattern is repeated at the end of the chapter. You see, verse 23, the warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So, so if you like, this chapter has got two sort of bookends that are emphasizing God is with Joseph. God is prospering Joseph. Joseph prospers because God prospers Joseph. And so this is a chapter that's really, really keen to, to tell us that God is at work in this young man's life. Well, a couple of, of little titles to help us navigate our way through this chapter. First of all, I want to say this. God is at work in his children's lives and circumstances. Very simple. God is at work in his children's lives, lives and circumstances. And, and so if, if we're here tonight, we're Christians, many of us are. If we're Christians tonight, we know that this is true for us. God is at work in our lives and circumstances. Now let's think, take a moment or two to think about this. God is with Joseph, passage is making that really, really clear, and yet think of where Joseph is. Never mind the things that have happened to him up till now, never mind the, the thoughts that could so easily have flooded Joseph's mind as he began to think of the hatred of the brothers against him. You, you just think of what this chapter tells us. He's a slave. He, he was sold. Uh, we've maybe seen enough movies to imagine what a, an ancient slave market looked like. He would have landed in Egypt not knowing anyone. He would have not known the language, presumably, not really understanding what was happening. He would have been prodded and poked and humiliated. And he, and he wouldn't have started out in charge of Potiphar's household, of course. He would have gone in at the bottom. The very worst of jobs were given to Joseph. And, and you wonder, how, how long did that rise to the position of influence take? Did it take six months or a year or, or several years? We're, we're not really told. And even whenever he's, he's doing well, whenever he's running the whole operation, when he's the, the Dominic Cummings of, of uh, Potiphar's household, he's still a slave. He's far from home. Uh, this is a situation that Joseph would never have chosen. 
And then, of course, it goes all wrong. And, and though he does the right thing, he is blamed and ends up in jail. What, what a terrible experience for him, just, just when things were starting to sort of look a little bit better. And, and there, too, he rises to the top. But don't forget, he's still a prisoner. And indeed, he's still a slave. This chapter, you see, contains the worst possible experiences for Joseph. Tells us them off them very quickly without too much comment at points. But he's, he's, we understand he's lonely, he's disorientated, he's pressurized. And yet the overall message of this chapter is that in these situations, the Lord is with him and is helping him live faithfully for God. Now, if you or, or I were to be asked, what would it look like for the Lord to be with us? You're going to go out into this week. You pray that, Lord, be with me this week. What, what would you expect? What, what, would you, what would you look for? What would you understand would be an indication that the Lord would be with you. Maybe, maybe it would look like, like triumph, like everything falling into place. Life would be smooth. Or, or if you were asked, what would it feel like if the Lord was with you? Well, we might say something like a continual sense of God's presence, sense of communion, Inner peace, maybe. And yet here, Genesis 39, we see that, that the Lord is with Joseph when he's at his lowest point, when his circumstances are terrible, when his feelings, no doubt, are, are all over the place. And so we must conclude that what it really means for the Lord to be with us is perhaps not what we might think. It doesn't translate into health and wealth and prosperity. We used to sing an old hymn in, in Gilkemston, uh, which had, if I remember rightly, the verse, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? Somebody can find out what that is for me. Uh, and of course, the, the implication is no. That's not what it means to have the Lord with us. It's, it's much grittier. It, 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 it might look something like these years in the life of Joseph. And that might be, for some of us, just the sort of recalibration that, that, that some of us need. I'm sure you, like me, have a, a watch that, that maybe doesn't keep the time as it should. And, and, and every now and again, I've got one that, that tends to run a little bit fast, and every now and again, I need to check it with the radio or the computer or whatever it might be to recalibrate it. It, it, it drifts away to its, its own sort of reality, away from what is actually true. And we're like that at times, aren't we? Like dodgy watches. We, we find ourselves drifting away from what is right and, and, and thinking and inventing our, our own understanding of how the universe works. And in that universe of our own imaginings, we will so easily drift into thinking that God's presence will mean an easy time and his presence will mean that we feel good. 
but, but if we're to recalibrate ourselves to the truth, and, and even to the truth in this passage, we've got to understand that if we belong to the Lord, then he is with us, even when it's hard and lonely, and, and, and the circumstances are, are, as we might say through tears, Lord, this is not how I want my life to be. And this feels awful. God is at work in his children's lives and circumstances. And the truth is that God is at work to do amazing things in, in Joseph. Joseph would be elevated from that jail to become the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Through his planning, many lives would be saved as the nation of Egypt was prepared well for a devastating seven-year famine. Through him, his own family would be saved from famine, and they would be relocated to Egypt and would grow into a mighty nation, a great people of God. And that, of course, meant that the family line would be preserved for from Judah and Judah's line, Jesus would come. And so, at a human level, the consequences of what is happening here with Joseph ripple down through centuries and across millennia and, and into eternity. There's a sense in which we're here because of the things that God was doing through Joseph. At the end of his life, he sees a little bit of it. He says to the brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. But even then, he didn't see it all. But, but it's here for us in the Scriptures that we might understand that God does not forsake his children even in the tough times, he is at work. The, the relative smoothness of your life or the lack of smoothness of your life is not an indicator of God's presence or not. God is at work in his children's lives and circumstances. That's the first thing. Second thing, these are far from snappy titles. The second thing is to say this. God's children should respond faithfully to God's work in their lives and circumstances. God's children should respond faithfully to God's work in their lives and circumstances. Now, in other words, to say that, that, that God is at work does not mean that what Joseph does is unimportant not at all. This is a passage that is telling us about the presence of God with Joseph, but it's also telling us about Joseph's godly responses to the things that he finds himself in, to his circumstances. He is godly in the early stages of his time in Potiphar's house so that Potiphar sees that God is with him. <clears throat> you notice that it is not that Potiphar thinks that Joseph is exceptionally capable in and of himself. You notice what he says in verse 3? When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. I'm sure, like me, you long for the sort of life that makes this sort of impact. 
a life that, that those who do not know God cannot explain except by saying, God is with her. God is with him. And Joseph had such a life. And then, of course, he, he, is, he is godly in his response to Potiphar's wife. When she makes her intentions known to him, we get an insight into his thinking, which is really so very, very helpful. You notice, for example, that he thinks of his master's generosity to him. He says in, in verses 8 and 9 that his master has withheld nothing from him except, appropriately, his wife. And, and it's interesting that, that, that Joseph sees this as a sign of his master's generous spirit. In the Garden of Eden, Eve finds herself in, in sort of a, a similar situation. You think of it. God has been generous to Eve and to, to her husband, Adam. You may eat from any tree in the garden, God says. So in other words, nothing is withheld except for one tree or the fruit from one tree from which you shall not eat. Now, how should Eve view that? Well, she should view that rather like Joseph views the generosity of his master. She should see, Eve should see that God is exceptionally generous and for her protection has established an appropriate limit. And yet, what does the evil one suggest to her? that such a, a small restriction is actually a sign of God's unreasonableness. Satan says to her, take what has been withheld from you. He, he suggests that such a restriction is, is entirely unreasonable and should be overthrown. Now, now, you see, Joseph doesn't go that way. He doesn't see it that way. In other words, he, he doesn't think like the evil one. He thinks in a godly way as a child of God should think. A child of God should see the bountiful goodness of God and appropriate restrictions as an indication of his kindness. Another thing we should see here, as we, as we get this insight into Joseph's thinking, he, he's not a relativist. He's not a relativist. Uh, lots of people, we, we live in a world where, where relativism is very, very common. Uh, lots of people think in relativistic ways. In other words, what is right in one circumstance is not necessarily right in another. It's up to you to, to sort of read your situation and, and, and to work out what's right in, in this situation. Never mind what's right over there. It, it's really the outworking of the idea that there are no moral absolutes. That, that's the culture that we live in. And so you can't say that this or that is, is right or wrong in all places at all times and for all people. So, so you could just imagine if Joseph had a pagan, relativistic roommate and he comes home and they say, well, how was your day today? And he says, oh, what a terrible day I've had. It's, this is a disaster. He says, uh, you know, Potiphar's wife, she's making these advances to me. I, I, I'm trying to avoid being with, with her as, as, as much as possible. It, it really is hard. Uh, wh what do you suggest? And his pagan roommate would say something like this. Oh, Joseph, I, I know you were brought up 
way out there in the sticks in, in Canaan. I, I knew that you were brought up to believe that the bond of marriage should never be violated. And, you know, that, that, that worked in that place that you came from. It, it protects families. It's important for stable agriculture. But you're in Egypt now. No one believes that down here. My advice to you, fit into your context. As the Bengals said, walk like an Egyptian. That missed just about everybody, didn't it? But, but, but you see, once we believe in God, all of his laws are an expression of his character and his will for all that he has made. And therefore, that just goes out the window. Relativism just cannot work. What God says is good, what God says is bad, applies everywhere for all people at all times. And this is how Joseph thinks. You see, in verse 9, he calls the prospect of adultery a great wickedness. It's not just a wickedness in Canaan. It's not just a wickedness in Egypt. It's a wickedness everywhere. Interestingly, I read yesterday that some recent research with toddlers identified that they had an inherent sense of fairness. Uh, this is how they st- people get paid for this. They, they, they studied them by uh, having them watch Punch and Judy shows. And uh, they, they, the toddlers were not able to speak, but they, they filmed them and they watched how long and, and what they stared at and they, they timed it and so on. And by allowing them to watch these Punch and Judy shows, they worked out that when the baddies were not dealt with as they should be, they stared at those who had the ability to change the situation, those who were the, the sort of the goodies, the leaders, and so on. And so, so they, they, they concluded that independent of their nurture, despite what sort of family background they came from, and these were little kids who couldn't really communicate in any other way, they had an inbuilt concern for justice. Isn't that amazing? That's all it concluded. It was almost as if they said, they have an inbuilt concern for justice and we can't work out why. Well, we know why, don't we? Because they've been made in the image of God, a God who has given us just rules for all people everywhere. And to some extent has woven those very rules into the fabric of the DNA of a toddler. God's faithful children, you see, are not relativists. Now, this is a slightly different issue, but, but I, I read a report recently, this, this week indeed, that, that said that among Christians, sexual activity outside marriage in the West is at a higher level than ever before. In other words, couples who profess to be Christians but yet are not married are sexually active. And they're saying things like, well, you know, it's okay as long as we're committed to one another. And what has happened there? Well, Christians have ceased to believe in a God whose laws are expressions of his character and are true at all times in all places. So that sex outside of the marriage bond from, of one man to one woman is wrong in Liberia and Lurgan, wrong in 2019 and wrong in 1919. 
Christians have listened to the culture instead of to the Lord. Joseph was not a relativist. But, but, but maybe most importantly of all in Joseph's thinking is what he says next in verse 9. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So ultimately, Joseph, you see, is living his life with reference to God. Potiphar's been good to him, yes. He believes in moral absolutes. But, but the thing that really shapes his life ultimately is that he's, he's living his life in reference to this living God before God's face. Verse 10 tells us that the temptation was persistent and enduring. And I think the hint is that it is this awareness of his responsibility to God that keeps him faithful. R.C. Sproul says this, the big idea, is a fairly long quote, the big idea of the Christian life is coram deo. Coram deo captures the essence of the Christian life. The phrase literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live coram deo is to live one's life, entire life, in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we're doing or wherever we're doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we cannot escape his penetrating gaze. Integrity is found where men and women live their lives in a pattern of consistency. It is a pattern that functions the same basic way in church and out of church. It is a life that is open before God. It is a life in which all that is done is done as to the Lord. It is a life lived by principle, not expediency, by humility before God, not defiance. It is a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the word of God. Coram Deo, before the face of God. That's the big idea. Next to this idea, our other goals and ambitions become mere trifles. Brothers and sisters, make it our aim to live Coram Deo, before the face of God. Now, just before we move on, we need to say that, that and note that, that such a life, such a life of integrity was, was incredibly costly for Joseph. He, he did the right thing. He honored the Lord. And, and we know that the Lord always honors those who honor him. The Bible tells us that. But it's not always immediate, is it? And Joseph went to prison because, as Don Carson says, he was more interested in being a person of integrity and thought of as crooked than being crooked and thought of as a person of integrity. God's faithful children don't do the right thing because it pays immediately. Joseph's story would have ended here if he thought that. We do the right thing because the right thing is God's thing, and we're living before his face. First Peter 2, 20 says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. God's children should respond faithfully to God's work in their lives and circumstances. Well, just a, a word as we, as we sort of wrap up in a, a short uh, third title for us here. God's faithful servant here, Joseph, God's faithful servant here points us to the ultimate faithful servant in and through whom God worked and who we need or whom we need. Not sure.
God's faithful servant here points us to the ultimate faithful servant in and through whom God worked and who we need. Because we can't help but, but read this and not only be reminded of Joseph, but also of, of Jesus. Jonty was great at just bringing that out in Port Stewart. Joseph leads us to think of the one who's the greater Joseph. And, and, and the Bible doesn't make this parallel particularly explicit, so we don't want to go overboard in it. But, but there is just a, a sweep through all of the Old Testament, isn't there, that's just preparing us for Jesus so that, so that it all fits. So that, so that Jesus comes along and he feels familiar. I, I've, I've seen him before somewhere, or at least the themes of his life are familiar to me. Why? Because they've been worked out in, in God's people and especially in God's leaders, God's men down through the generations. Joseph is unusual in the Old Testament in that there's very little that's critical said about him. Possibly nothing at all, in fact. That's in marked contrast to some of the other Old Old Testament characters, Abraham and David and so on. Their stories are sort of told, warts and all. And yet there's no shadow with Joseph, not really. He wasn't sinless, of course. It's just that, that that's not emphasized in the Scriptures. And here we see that he is God's man for the saving of many lives, for the rescue and blessing of God's people, and he is the innocent sufferer. He does the right thing. He acts with integrity. And yet what happens? He is falsely accused and thrown in jail for it. And what does he do when he suffers innocently? Well, he carries on doing good. He, he, indeed, he, he ends up forgiving the very people that are responsible for his suffering. And, and so we look at Joseph here, for whom everything has gone wrong, though he is right, and we think of, of Jesus on the cross and the assessment of the, the thief who hung beside him and said, don't you fear God since we are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, Joseph is the one against whom evil is done and yet in whom God is at work to bring about good. Joseph was able to say at the end of his life to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He, he takes what is intended for his harm and salvation comes from it. Now that's the cross, isn't it? It's just the, the background music to the cross. Evil men conspired against the Lord Jesus as the disciples prayed. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. And then what did the disciples pray? They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, you were in control, Lord. You determined to bring about salvation to your people, to the blessing of the nations through the innocent sufferer. He's the one against whom evil is done and yet whom God is using to bring about good. Now, don't we need him tonight? It's so, it's so important, isn't it, that, that we hear the challenge of the godly life of Joseph. We, we need a challenge like that. But as we hear it, don't, don't we think, if you're anything like me, oh, Lord. I, I'm never going to be an innocent sufferer. Never going to be innocent. 
I'm going to fail. I'm going to, I'm going to mess up. And so, so we need one who, who does this perfectly and for us. We need one who is at work in God's broken people for their blessing. And this we have. And having come to him, we may trust him. Because he's the one, as we see here, he's the one who does all things well in Joseph's life. Can you trust him tonight? That he's going to do all things well in yours? Let's pray together. Lord, so, so much of us want to be like Joseph. We, we, we want to serve you well. We want to respond to you well. We want to trust you in all things. And yet, Lord, too, even as we desire that, we know that we need the one to whom Joseph points. We need Jesus. The one who forgives those who brought malice and pain and death to him. The one who restores the broken. The one whose purposes will not be thwarted. And so, Lord, today, in this week, as we seek to respond to your sovereignty over our circumstances, as we seek to respond faithfully to your goodness, we pray that you'll help us to trust in this Lord Jesus who's died for us. And we pray in his name. Amen.